Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Welcome to the first edition of the Art and Business of Music podcast hosted by me, Jimmy Davis, aka Tapes, where I talk to creatives and professionals about life in the music industry and what choosing the creative career path really looks like. Our debut guest on the show is one of the most dedicated, hardworking and talented people I know. John Parker is an exceptional double bassist, guitarist, beatboxer, composer, arranger and marathon running force of nature. As one half of Leamington Spa folk hip-hop duo Nizlopi, John scored a number one chart single with the JCB song and sold over a million records via their completely independent label FDM. Nizlopi and the FDM team had a famously DIY approach and achieved huge success against the odds. Their music and artistry went on to inspire and heavily influence one of the biggest pop stars on the planet and they still have a legion of devoted fans. So, before we dive into the episode, be sure to follow us on all social media channels at T-H-E-A-A-B-O-M and please do send us any feedback, comments or suggestions that you may have. Cheers and enjoy the show. John Parker. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm good. I don't know if I can live up to that list. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> Why don't we start with where the adventure began for you of becoming a creative and a musician? What sparked your interest in music? How did it all start? Oh, my dad, when I was a kid, my dad played acoustic guitar and used to sing like Beatles songs and you'd have like Eleanor Rigby playing, you know, amazing cello sounds like, oh my God, that's great. Well, my mum made vegetable soup. And then, um, and then really, I guess after that, really, you start stumbling upon your own taste of music, which ranged from anything like Queen to the first Beastie Boys album was the first tape I got my mum to buy, which had a little sticker on it, advising against the language. Um, and then, and then really, I guess I started playing music because my family life was very turbulent. And so I remember my mum giving me a little keyboard and saying, you know, when things get tough, just, you know, bang on this. And I can't play keyboards. But I, but I did, you know, I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, so I feel angry instead of like, you know, being dis- destructive, I could be creative instead and like make sounds, even if I didn't know what I was doing. And that's really how it all started for me. Moving on from there, when you really started to perhaps take it seriously in inverted commas, was the practice for you as much a discipline as it was an expression of your emotions? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have, I think if you'd used the word discipline, I would have probably stopped. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think it was structure. It was like, yeah, it gave me a kind of structure. Like I wanted to be an electric guitarist, like I was into heavy metal. I wanted long hair, I wanted to rock out. And there was just lots of people wanted to be that. And so I swapped to bass. And then I was just like, I've just got to be the best bass player. I can be it wasn't a competition against anyone else it was just like I just gotta be the best bass player and how do I do that and you do that by locking yourself away sitting in corridors I used to cycle with my electric bass and practice my electric bass it's kind of obsessive I loved it 
that's all I wanted to do. And then you, you know, go from like angry heavy metal and, but for bass, like the best bass players are soul bass players, hip hop bass, you know, like jazz bass players. So suddenly this whole other music opened. It was like, oh, there are, and along with that, like emotional learning comes. It's like, it doesn't all have to be shouty and angry and people don't have to die during the song. <laughs> so, so yeah. So yeah, so yeah, structure and and yeah, it was very. I was, I am, and was very disciplined when it comes to practicing. So, what was your first introduction to those other worlds of you know different styles and different genres? Then, was there a particular point? Do you do you have any recollection of one specific moment where you went, "Wow, what's going on over there? I want to go and look at that." Um, Paul Simon's Graceland, uh, that record. My dad had it on tape and we, me and my dad had quite a difficult relationship and, and he, he put this album on and it just, it was that, um, oh, there's a, like a reverse bass and you can call me Al, there's this kind of weird reverse bass loop thing and I was just like, what the hell is that? Well, I've never ever heard anything like it in my life and then obviously you can't physically play it <laughs> even though I tried very, very hard to play that. And that just kind of then opened up because that's kind of a funk African vibe going on on the bass. And it's like, well, I'm not hearing that in white Western pop music. It's like, where do I, how do I get there? And then and then bit by bit, you know, you go from the Jamaraquois of the world to the Stevie Wonders and you start delving deeper. And like, oh, okay, this is where it's, you know. And then once you start hearing James Jameson, electric bass player, it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> proper soul, proper groove, you know, and not necessarily technique, but just like feel, like oozes, oozes feel. So you were an electric bass mm. guitar player. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's so interesting because I've just never known you as that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and and hair then as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of dig a little deeper into... Um, or maybe touch on our kind of history and 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 where and where we we met a little bit later as as we progress this interview. But um, so yeah, I'm really interested then in where where did the switch come in? You know, when did you discover double bass and and what what made you uh, move over to the dark side? Or <laughs> it was very much moving over to the dark side. I I was I was studying jazz music as an electric bass player, so I was like 19 living with my first girlfriend in Manchester. And there were lots of electric bass players. And by that point, I was beginning to sort of go, we all sound the same. We're all just like, the chord is there and we're all just filling it with notes. And became quite disillusioned. And then I saw, um, well, I, I heard Danny Thompson play double bass, but then I saw what became my teacher, which was a guy called John Thorne. And I saw him play a jazz gig he had no shoes on, barefoot, huge German double bass. And he just went, Broom, like one note, massive sounding. And I was like, I've got to do that. I can't do it on electric bass. And that was it. So then sold. Halfway through uh, a course, I swapped instruments and had to just literally do eight hours a day practice because I, d I didn't even know how to tune the thing properly. So it's like, <laughs> how do I do this? A lot of people will know you, John, as being one half of Nisloppy. Yeah, I'd love to just touch on like, how did Nisloppy come about? And, and when did you meet Luke? And you know, when did that part of your life sort of 
begin to blossom? Good question. Um, I met Luke, I guess, I was probably 12 or 13. It's a very long time ago. We went to the same secondary school. And secondary school was a real turning point. I think it is for most kids. But for me, I was in primary school, I was already on a very, very different path. And one that wasn't music and was involved shoplifting and, you know, being pretty naughty. And I knew, I just had a real sense that that was not going to work out well. And, um, and so when I started secondary school, I was just like, oh, what do I really want to do? I really want to play music. And there was a kid that used to get on our bus with big hair that used to just stick out. Um, and we used to just, we were really cruel, like kids are. We used to just take the bick and piss, basically. And, um, and it turned out that was Luke. And his mum used to like blow dry his hair. Like the, and then it was just, it was just huge. It was a little ridiculous. Um, I'm still slagging him off now. Fucking hell. Um, and, um, but yeah, so, but he was in a band. He was singing. I was singing with a, a female singer in a rock band at secondary school. And they basically, the band split up because um, the guitarist didn't, didn't think that girls could sing heavy metal. And so they were looking, they had a gig in front of the assembly and they were looking for a band and I didn't really play bass I played the guitar and they were like oh no we need a bass player so I that was it and we ended up playing a Metallica song and a Guns N' Roses song to our assembly and um, it was amazing and Luke was singing I was playing bass and it was just like I want to do this this is it this is the path we're like famous so your love affair with bass actually began yeah. through that chance you know, opportunity to join Luke's band and yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, no way, man. And Luke probably isn't aware of that either. Actually, I don't know if you thought about that, but yeah, yeah, put it like that. So, how did the gig go? I mean, I absolutely loved it. I didn't realize I was quite shy and awkward, and and we got up on stage, and I was like. Oh yeah, and swinging my head around because I had long hair. It was like I was in Metallica. No, it's like I gave everything, and I think it was a real like it was a marker in the ground of like this is what I want to do, and this is this is this is home. This stage feels sounds cheesy, but it feels like home. It's like this is great. So yeah, would you say then that the the stage allows young people? It gives them that lease of life to come out of their shell to to be someone else at that moment. And is that what it was for you? Yeah, hell yeah. Um, and I think um, our school was really progressive. It used to do something called Craig Stock. There was a guy called Craig. And he used to, it was after hours. So it was an evening gig at a secondary school. So you've got all these kids, own clothes, you know, like obviously drinking, you know, and not, you know, on the cycle track and coming into school half cut. But, but we had like, a, it wasn't really a battle of the bands. It was just like four or five bands would play and you got to play in front of an audience. So yeah, it was like, I think it broke down the barrier between what you were watching on MTV or listening onto the radio. Suddenly it was like, it was tangible. It's like, I, what's the difference between me and, Led Zeppelin, I can, I'm doing obviously talent and you know, all those things, but, but like it was, yeah, you just for really felt very close to the actual, to, to, to your heroes doing it. And yeah, there would have been a lot of youngsters who it, it stopped them like me, stopped them doing other things. It was like, oh, actually I'm going to put all that into hitting the drums hard or playing lots of bass notes or, you know, 
Okay, cool. I think that nicely leads us into your first song choice. Okay. Perhaps you could give us a little flavor of how this song influenced you and the impact it had on you. Cool. I actually mentioned him already. Um, my old bass teacher was a guy called John Thorne. And although he he was kind of, uh, he sort of changed my world in the fact that I saw him play double bass and I was like, I want to do that. That year I'd been to Phoenix Festival, which is like a Mid Midlands like kind of dance rock festival. And a band called Lamb were playing. I never, ever heard them. And they were just, it was just such energy. It was like, oh my God, that's incredible. And they had kind of a single, it was called Gorecki. Um, which is named after the Polish composer, who also I'm a huge fan of. But um, yeah, so the band Lamb, the track Gorecki, and really there's that energy and vibe and giving it everything. Loved it. That was Gorecki by Lamb, taken from their self-titled debut 1996 album. So your bass teacher slash mentor was mm. in that band. Yeah, John That's Thorne. pretty cool, man. Very cool. Yeah, really cool, because he was very... He, he taught jazz music in a very... It's quite straight, but then also he, he was living a, quite a rock and roll lifestyle as well. So you had... Yeah, so you'd come in and my first bass lesson was kind of like, so who do you like? And I reeled off all the names that you're supposed to like on a jazz course. And he was like, do you really like those musicians? And I was like, I'm not really used to somebody kind of going, picking holes in quite clearly. I don't know what I'm talking about. And so he used to make mixtapes that I had to listen to every week of like different genres of music, different bassists. And he was just like, I want you to come in. And I want you to have an opinion. Even if the opinion is, I don't really have an opinion on this guy. So that's an opinion I want. So And it really helped because it was like, oh, this is what turns me on about bass. And all these notes and uh, that doesn't. And But that big growl, that's, you know. So he was a great teacher. Definitely more mentor. That's so cool that he was introducing you to all these new worlds, expanding your musical vocabulary in that way. I think that, you know, it's so important, isn't it, to have someone influence you like that yeah and and someone i think also that it wasn't just music he was living the kind of life that i kind of wanted to do like he was playing playing big festivals to lots of people and people pogoing and singing the songs back and i was like i want to do that and he was also i mean he wouldn't mind me saying he was a cautionary tale as well because that path is it's not all like amazing. It can be really hard. You can get no work. You can get lots of work. You can enjoy the excesses too much. You can burn out. And I kind of got to see all that through him while I was learning as a double bass player. So then when it when it came to my 10 minutes of fame, I I bore that in mind that, that this might not last. So to kind of enjoy it and also not enjoy it too much. <laughs> So let's pick back up then where we left off with the beginnings of the Nislapi journey. Mm. 
what happens next, man? Where did it go from there? You you, you played your sold out show on stage <laughs> at school. <laughs> Craig Stock. Yeah. Which we did repeatedly every year. Um, basically, then after that, very quickly, that van kind of split. I think we recorded The Big If. Uh, I've still got the poster at home. Uh, Isn't that like a BBC One show hosted by Nicky Campbell <laughs> on a Sunday morning or something? He, he, Nicky Nick Campbell was a big fan. And, you know, we're, we were having legal battles at the moment. We, you know. So, yeah, basically, we went from there to just really realising that the two of us, me and Luke, were very motivated by music. We loved it. We were both huge U2 fans, actually. And um, his dad had a CD player which I'd never seen. It was like modern technology. What the hell is that? And his and the, the Concanons had just an awesome uh, eclectic CD collection. So me and Luke, I just hung out with Luke all the time. I lived in that family house, and we just we you know we had that kind of awkward. It was very intimate that awkward moment of like we're going to write a song together. And it is. It's like the first time you know you're naked in front of a partner. It's like. Oh my God, this is, <laughs> yeah, I could do with losing a little weight or working out. But it was great. And we just knew then, and we wrote really, really odd songs. Nothing like the JCB song. They were just really odd, very crazy things. And we just loved it. And that was it. We did that all the time. Do you remember that first track that you wrote together? I think we recorded it, in fact, ages ago. Uh, I think it was Soul Tables. Yeah, like uh, I used to play electric bass, but I'd tap the chords and then play a melody over the top of it. And then we'd have a go at like sampling beats. It sounds very cool, but really it was a drum machine with a play button. Um, and that's how we kind of wrote. Yeah, I've still got tapes of, of those songs. And that, to me, they kind of really, I still love them. Yeah, probably more so than the songs people have actually heard. It sounds like you were experimenting from early on in this creative relationship. And how important was it for you to that collaborative process? Mm, essential. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Nisloppy and especially me and Luke being such good friends, kind of brothers, really, that it was kind of special. I mean, I've obviously written with lots of other people and played music with lots of other people. But me and Luke had something that was very unique and special. It just meant... I kind of knew when he wanted to change chords and we never talked about it. It just happened. We just knew each other. We, we, we literally would stand opposite each other, playing ideas to each other and, res and like responding to each other's ideas eight hours a day. And so we j I just got to know all of his quirks and he got to know many of mine. And um, there wasn't really a, a, you know, and in a certain sense after Nisloppy, I, it was one of the reasons I didn't then go on and form my own thing because it's very hard once that, not to call us the Lennon and McCartney, but it's that bond. It's like, it's a special bond. Very, very hard to have that with anybody else, really. What, so where do you go from there then? So you, you, you start creating together, you're, you're hitting buttons on the drum machine, <laughs> you, you, you're experimenting with all sorts of weird chords and melodies over chords and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you, you've written your first song. Was it long then before you started going out playing live as a duo? We were already playing with Luke's dad, Kieran, had like an Irish Indian fusion band. Luke would sing and play baron, which is like an Irish drum, and I would play electric bass. And so we already got that taste of playing and we'd play in Irish sessions as well. So we would just get up and go, we've written this song and... 
we'd have a go at playing and then quickly shrink underneath our chairs. And they always went really, it went down really well. I mean, Luke, can, Luke has had and has an ability with a crowd to just get them to go, oh my God, you know, like he's got such a great voice. So, um, so yeah, so we were performing and we'd write a song. There was like a local cafe called Rhubarb where where we were brought up and we used to write a song and then go and play it in the lunchtime to the poor customers. <laughs> must have heard all sorts of terrible things. So, yeah, so then that, that's really what happened. We recorded a kind of demo, a uh, friend's studio, and then, and then, yeah, just committed to the musical path then basically after that. So was it at that point that it got really serious? Yeah, Luke went to university and was studying, what was it? I think he called it literature and girlfriend studies or something. Um, and, um, and he, I think he then really realized like what a gift he had, you know, he was singing in a ska band and he was writing and I came down to live with him in Brighton for a short time and we were writing and we were just like, well, this is silly. Why don't we just do this? Why don't we move back to the Midlands and just write an album? Let's just do it. Why not? You know, we're young, we're foolish see what happens you know and that's what we did and kieran luke's dad built a studio in his shed um and yeah we went on to record our first record really like early 2000s okay so you moved back to the midlands you began writing what became half these songs are about you yeah. uh what was that process like you know the the creative process of m making that album uh, amazing um yeah, I mean, writing the songs was, was a real trip because, you know, we, we just used to, when we met, we just wrote songs. And then because we were now doing it full time, there were moments where, like, we didn't have ideas and we were getting, like, writer's block or something. And, you, and we have to set different tasks, like, just go away and write. You've got 15 minutes, write a song or let's write at this speed, you know, like temp tempo beat tempo wise just to get out of the habit of all the songs sounding the same and um and just to inspire you down a different path um so the writing process was great fun and then the recording process we had a producer called gavin monaghan who was just i'd never met anyone quite like him <laughs> he like had a skull on the recording desk he looked like he should have been producing the next Black Sabbath record, but he was producing this kind of folky, hip-hoppy, yeah, well, folky singer-songwriter record, really. And uh, he had narcolepsy. So sometimes you'd, you'd be chatting to him, and then he'd just be asleep. And, or you'd go in and you'd do your bass tech take, and you'd be like, oh, I've really nailed it. And you'd come back in, and he was fast asleep. <laughs> You're like, okay, it's a confidence booster. Nah, tick boxes. Cheers, Gav. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Did Gavin play a large part in the overall sound of the album eventually? Or was it more steering you in terms of the performance in the studio? I think we'd never worked with a producer before and I still struggle to understand what a producer does and what an engineer does. Um, but Gavin was good at... He, would, he, was, he was good at like... Well, you'd play something and you'd come in and you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's the one. And he'd look at you and you just knew from the way he looked at you that he felt like you had one better than that in there. So then you go, and it became all about not necessarily pleasing Gavin, but like, well, yeah, it did for me. I was very much like, <laughs> I definitely wanted to please him. I, I drove him utterly nuts as well. Um, but 
yeah it was it was you wanted you wanted him to hear it and go oh that's really good that that was the marker you had to hit so really helpful but as the terms arrangement and sounds me and luke knew what we wanted the record to sound like you know and it was just how do we get get there basically amazing i think that's a good point to start discussing your second song choice uh, my second song choice it was very difficult um very difficult to pick songs <laughs> generally um it has to be a john martin track and i picked bless the weather because just the opening double bass sound the bigness was just so exciting and me and luke saw the transatlantic sessions on on television and we thought John Martin was this new and up and coming, like young singer songwriter. I didn't realize he'd recorded his albums in like the 60s and 70s. So it was kind of a, yeah, massively important to my bass playing and our songwriting. Really. I mean, Danny Thompson, the double bass player, um, is a legend and a gent. Like, I wrote to him when I first started double bass. I wrote him a letter. I didn't put an address on it. Just, just It was literally just, I love what you do. I love the vibe, all that sort of thing. And he tracked me down and left an answer phone message, which was on our answering phone for, like, years. It was like a proper London, what? And he, he said, watch her quite a lot. And he was just, he was so lovely and he left his number and I was like, there's no way I'm giving him a call. And then he called me back and I answered the phone and we spoke and we started this kind of email conversation. Um, and he played with and John Martin, sadly passed away and me and Danny were in touch around that time. And we kept meeting at festivals and now I debt for him. So I play on artists that, you know, he's too busy to be playing with and I end up doing that. So, yeah. It was inevitable at some point in the interview, we were going to discuss the song that you are best known for. How did that come about? And was it one of those songs that as soon as you heard it, you knew you had something, you were onto something? Was it something that grew and, and, and kind of gained traction? Uh, the writing of the song, that's one of the songs that mainly came from Luke. I mean, the music side really came from me, but the... Obviously, what the whole song is about is a very personal experience of growing up as Luke and Cannon and his relationship with his dad, and um, and I think I think the story goes that basically Luke was pestering his dad. You know, I, what should I write? I'm a bit stuck. You know, that kind of whole thing. I need some inspiration, and his dad was just very flippantly write about diggers, and that was it. And then off he writes this song, and he played it me, and I was just like. Oh, I don't know. It's a bit cheesy. I don't know. JCBs, really. And I wasn't a massive fan. And he was always slightly reluctant to have it on the set list when we were doing the shows at that time. But then we'd play it and 
the the that's we won the audience that was the song that for some reason people stopped shouting at each other in a pub and would listen we like i don't i just i just just didn't understand it. it took me a long time to understand that reaction and it was the song after gigs you get groups of big guys rugby playing guys going man yeah my dad too and just in tears and you'd be like okay there's something really powerful going on that i'm really missing <laughs> and that luke is really managing to trigger in people so obviously had to go on the record um and and i agree to really love it and understand it more but it was a very different you know at the time there were a lot of interviews around the jcb song about relationships with dads and i was having to answer these questions i was like my relationship with my dad's nothing like this like it would have been a very different song if i'd written it <laughs> so um and it definitely wouldn't have been a number one um you know the the interesting thing about that is that firstly i mean we're talking about the jcb song here for, for anyone that was un, unaware i probably should have said that before i launched into the question <laughs> But the funny thing about it is that Luke's dad never drove a JCV, did he? No, it was, no. It was always a Massey Ferguson. Massey Ferguson, yeah. yeah. The other thing that, that strikes me about the origins of that song is that it literally feels like something that was stumbled across. Mm. And that is the magic of music, isn't it? That sometimes it's the unexplainable. Yeah. And it's almost as if it's being channeled from somewhere else and we hit on something that really resonates with people. And, and in that instance, I, I, I remember very specifically where I heard that song and how it made me feel for the first time. And it was very similar to yourself. My relationship with my, with my dad was very fractured and fairly non-existent. And it, it really just made me feel like I wish I had that relationship with my dad. And it just made me think of that bond that perhaps wasn't there. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that's maybe that's what is what was resonating with people and, and and why they were really feeling it and vibing with it. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, now it's, we get emails from... Like, apparently now you have to have permission to have a song played at... or a video played at a funeral. The, the, care, the funeral directors have to prove that they've gone uh, to the artist or the record label to ask permission. So we get, I get feel quite a lot of emails from people saying... You know, they want this song played at his dad's funeral or whatever. And it's like, of course, why would you say no? But also, yeah, it's a song that does, it's it's about family. There is loss. There is loss there of if that relationship is no more or you never had that relationship. You know, there is definitely a melancholic edge to that song as well, as well as a celebration for actually good dads, which often don't get celebrated. Dads are often overlooked as being kind of crap or not there. And actually, this is an example of a dad being good, you know. So you've gone from kind of playing it in front of people, audiences, and you're getting that reaction. Is it at that point that you start to think, okay, there's something in this? Not really. I mean, I think I think our thought was just it was just it was amazing when when you play to I don't know we were playing to say fifty to a hundred people at that point, and they were knew the words and they were singing it back to you. And it's like okay, I'm in some sort of weird fantasy world of like I'm writing a song and they're singing it back to me, and it's just amazing to the point that you could stop playing the song and it's still being sung at you. Is it's like kind of as a musician, it's kind of dreams are made of that. Um, and so we knew we were onto something special, but we we were also by the time of success of that song, you know, like as in 
viewed success of that song, we were already working on a second record in a cottage in the middle of nowhere. And when we didn't, weren't really looking at ourselves as being a kind of successful pop artist or having a hit, you know, like that kind of happened totally organic. You know, in the beautiful way that a song, when you release it, has its own life. And in 20 years time, you know, it could be a massive hit. And you're like, oh, but I'm working on a building site now. Like, you know, so, um, you know, I've got, I've, got, I've got bills to pay. Um, so, yeah, so it, had a, it still does have a life of its own, it has its own website, I think. And you know, I'm, I'm interested in at what point did you guys or the team kind of go, right, this is going to be a single that we're going to push and we're going to we're going to make it happen in an in a really independent way yeah i think i think it was indep- in a really independent way as in we thought this is yeah like this is our most popular song and um and and a song that just resonated so we thought well, yeah we should release it and then it's that difficult thing that's like okay we've got this great song and it sounds great now we've got to get a video and really, me and Luke in a JCB, no. And all the storylines we came up with were just naff. Music videos are really hard to make unless you've got a ridiculous budget. It's just really, and even then, you know, like Kanye West managed to pull it off by making a, a ballet dancing film, you know, like, that, which is incredible. Um, but how you do that with no budget. And so we put it, we just floated it out there on the internet, which is, you know, had just sort of really taken up and um we were looking for any ideas filmmakers animators anything and then this guy Laith, just he's he faxed a, a like a pencil drawing of like kieran's head this, you know, sitting in a jcb and we it arrived and we were just like well, that's it that's the video that's just it was just so perfect with little transformers in the background everything he just basically written the drawn the lyrics it was perfect so many great anecdotes to the story. At what point did it really start to take off? So, that, so yeah, so basically once we had, we couldn't afford to do the video in one go. So we did it in three sections and we released it section by section. I think a section was a thousand pounds each, which when you've got no money, is a phenomenal amount of money. I wasn't aware of that. Is that. Was that the original form the video took? Yeah, three yeah. separate three, parts. Three, three, yeah, because it, wow. it takes so long to do and also we didn't have the money. So we release like a big build up on MySpace or whatever it was at the time, you know, and um, yeah, the first part of the JCB song. And I think it was, it had, it was completed and it would just was getting loads of hits. It just kind of went viral, you know, before viral was a thing. Um, got played on Radio 1. I was on a bus in London. Going, I had seen some friends and Joe Wiley played it on Radio 1. And we had no pluggers. We had no record label. We had nothing. It's just a friend had emailed her and gone, well, this is amazing. You've got to play it. And because she played it, then everybody else went, what is this? Who are the hell are these guys? Never heard of them. And then it snowballed. And then we sat down as a team, as a family of friends and went, well, what do we do? And at that point, William Hill, the kind of betting group were like odds for Christmas number one. We're like, this is nuts. And I remember we got a phone call from The Sun and The Sun is not only a terribly big, awful national newspaper, but it's also like a really small newspaper as well. And I thought it was a really small newspaper calling up to talk about, you know, a local gig. And it was the National Sun wanting to talk about us being 
possibly Christmas number one. Um, so it was nuts. And then we just we all just sat down and said, yeah, we're going to go for it. And it was made as clearly as possible that this would take over our lives for two months. And we'd give two months to this campaign. And, um, and they weren't wrong. We were literally, I would go to bed and three hours later, someone would wake me up and it'd be like, it's Radio 5, the breakfast show, it's 6.30 in the morning. And, the, and, and it was amazing because you meet all these people that you hear on the radio, you see like you did BBC television. And, and yeah, it was just, it was such a trip that you kind of yourself uh, wanting to interview them. It's like, what's it like? What on the earth is your life like? So um, yeah, a wonderful experience, full on. Wow. So you committed to the challenge of getting the number one Christmas single uh, was that was it 2005 or six five 2005 yeah. yeah first of all did it happen uh we were number one the week before christmas and then it changed to the public on christmas day but the charts are actually done a little bit before that so we weren't christmas number one we were number two for ages and in fact we had to pull the single because it was stopping us releasing anything else it was like there for like 12 weeks or something it was like Oh, for God's sake, we need to just move on with our lives. What would you say is there was a highlight of that period of time, you know? That two-month period, was there anything that really stands out? Uh, ooh, I, I guess two things, because um, they're the first two things that came to my head, so they definitely stood out, and I can remember them. Um, we did a, a showcase show before the number one at the Bedford, and it was sold out. And there was just, a, we did a, we do our thing of, playing acoustically in the crowd. We had all our friends and our family there. And and there, you could just, there was just an electricity. It was just different. Things had changed. And uh, and it was amazing. It was definitely right at the beginning of this huge wave that we were on. So that was incredible. And, you know, we couldn't be heard when people were singing the song back to us. So it was, that was pretty incredible. And then Top of the Pops for me personally, one, it's an iconic TV show, but also my family were not so involved in the Nisloppy thing. And, you know, I was constantly asked when I was going to get a proper job or, you know, like, you know, surely it's time to grow up. And the Top of the Pops thing was a real, like, it was just so huge. And my family watched it. My mum saw me play. She'd not really ever seen me play before. Um... You know, it just felt like, it felt very special. For us, for me and Luke, it was like, a, it was just saying thank you. It was a thank you note, really. So that really stands out as quite special. For anyone listening who doesn't know what Top of the Pops is, <laughs> it, it was like the biggest TV music show for decades, wasn't it? Yeah. Right up until it stopped. So, you know, very iconic. And to say that you've played on that show is in my eyes is legendary yeah we did it live as well so that was un pretty much unheard of so they had to set up mics that worked and like do the sound and um yeah it was it was yeah some something else <laughs> and do, do you remember exactly what joe wiley said before she played the song was she sort of in your view taking a punt or or had it got to the point where she knew that you know this was something and a definite punt, definite. She, she, it just struck a chord with her, uh, and a frainer. You know, and the best way, like poor, like if you're a DJ, you're just bombarded with like, 
hey, my name's Steve, I work for Sony, this is the big sensation, and you're just putting on you know, dross after dross, and probably stuff you don't listen to at all. And like her, Dermot O'Leary, another one, they're huge music fans. They, you know, off mic, you can sit there chatting about anything from, you know, 70s metal to like, you know, the latest kind of hip hop trends at that time. So they knew their music and she just really loved it. And I don't think she even realized the impact it would have had on us, apart from the fact that we've been played on Radio 1 and we could put that on our website. Um, but yeah, yeah. All right, cool. I think that's a great place for us to, to pause and for you to introduce your third song choice and give us a flavour of why it is you've chosen this track. Okay, this is The Roots, um, the Philadelphia hip-hop, live hip-hop band. And I've chosen a song called False Media, partly because... It's a bit edgier, and that record, which is Game Theory, is a lot more political for them. But The Roots were doing hip-hop live with an amazing drummer, a beatboxer, somebody who could scratch records with his voice. And I was beatboxing reluctantly through all the Nislapi shows and felt really embarrassed and just felt like, what's it, cultural... Uh, oh, just, yeah, like, not really understanding the roots of it. And then... Uh, I saw the roots and I was just, oh my God, that's amazing. Like just music oozing from all their pores with like meaning. Oh, it was, yeah. So the roots, he, and I, in fact, when we were touring in later years, one of the tours we did with Jimmy, in fact, I would quite often go out before we played and I'd have my headphones on my hood up and it would be just the roots live. Just get that beat in your head, get that feel. Like when you get up and beatbox, that's your quest love. Come on, come on, come on, your quest love. I'm a white, skinny guy from the Midlands, and I'm no Questler. <laughs> Kill me, slave, Indian, Mexican. It looks real fucked up for your Mexican. That's why I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. If I can't work to make it, I'll rob and take it Either that or me and my children are starving and naked Rather be a criminal pro than a follow the matrix Hey, it's me, a monster, y'all done created I've been inaugurated Keep the bright lights out of our faces You can't shake it, it ain't a way to swallow So that was False Media by The Roots Taken from their 2006 Game Theory album Just coming back to where we left off Was there a particular moment where you genuinely thought what the fuck is going on here you know like a a gig that you played around that time or any any story that you might have yeah the two things are connected so um we we get offered i can't remember we get offered some big tv show in london and we have a gig in worcester at the mars bar which is where we always played and it had sold out like it was mad. I mean, it had sold out within seconds. And um, and they were like, this TV show is really important. And we were like, well, we can't, what? we've got a gig. We can't physically do both. And we knew then that things were getting a bit weird because the TV company were like, we could helicopter you from London to the gig. And we were like, oh, man, no, that's just, no that's just really weird. I mean, it didn't happen, partly because I'm petrified of heights. So I was like, like yeah, this sounds really cool but not for me. And then the gig itself, um, we play this gig and the crowd splits, sorry, the crowd, crowd splits down the middle and on one side is 
old school Nislopi fans and then the other side are like newbies and they start chanting the old school side were like we were here first we were here first it was totally nuts totally and utterly nuts wow kind of fast forwarding slightly so I ended up coming on a on a tour with you guys in 2007 it's good for me to point out at this moment that that was the first big thing that I ever did in music and it's an opportunity for me to say thank you for that for, for giving me that platform and that was an incredible experience it was the first time I'd ever been on tour what was really interesting about that tour is that a 15 year old had written to you hadn't he asking if he could come and do his work experience with you on the tour yeah what's that all about man like f- fill the listeners in and 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 what was it like receiving a letter was he was he kind of saying oh, I'm your biggest fan uh, the letter, I think, originally, I think originally might have been from his mum. And then and then he got on board. But yeah, so the ginger little wonder, which is Ed Sheeran. I mean that affectionately. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm misbehaving now, aren't I? Um, but yeah, so basically we, we ran a record label and we offered work experience. So you got to do a week in the office where you just office boring office job but for a band that hopefully you like and then um and then we took them out on the road so bradley blackwell was our one of my dearest friends was was our regular tech who knew more about anything than any of us and you know we literally would take him on tour and drop him at school for his exams his gcse's um having kept him awake all night and and fielding science questions at him on the journey home and yeah and and he was just obviously we just took different people and one of those people was ed sheeran um and he was our guitar tech and he just loved hanging out he liked hanging out asking loads of questions it was really clear even if he didn't go into songwriting and music as a profession he would do something around the arts because he was just he just wanted to know how everything worked it's like why have you gone to that chord what like you could have gone to that one it's like why well, I, I don't know I don't have answers for you and um and i can't remember what, what show the first time i heard him play i remember the norwich art center and that might have been the first time you were on that tour weren't you for for that one and uh, and just he had he just had like he'd watch Luke night after night and like not control, but like persuade the audience to sing and, you know, really get in there. And it was obvious that Ed was like a sponge. He was just picking up all this stuff. I mean, Gary Dunn was around at the similar sort of time. So all the looping stuff. And yeah, he was like, he, he'd like, he was a terrible tech. Um, I have to say that. I've said it a number of times, but for the Bristol show, the gigs were really full on for me. They were like a full on workout, musically, emotionally, and just physically. I was beatboxing for an hour and a half. Um, I'm overplaying massively. Um, and I was very nervous. I, not a lot of people realized that I was very nervous and had a lot of panic attacks around gigs. Like, I, you know, really struggled with being on stage during the later New Sloppy tours. And um, Ed, at the Bristol show, drank our entire ride. <laughs> I just remember, be like, man, you're supposed to be like, where's the leads? Like, what are you doing? And he just like, he was chatting to people and drinking the wine. So he'd already arrived at being, um, you know, 
singer, a rock star before. But, you know, and he, in fact, he played our, our last show before we first split up. And it was, I think it was him and four events and then his loppy. And it was just like, oh, God. Cause we, were, we, were, we were basically on the ropes and we'd invited, you know, two amazing artists. They just had us, basically. <laughs> had us at our weakest point. Hang on a minute, right? Let's rewind here <laughs> slightly. Ed Sheeran. You kind of breezed over <laughs> the fact that... Let, let's, not, let's not make any bones about it. This guy was a big, big fan of yours, yeah? And, and that is essentially why he'd written to you. Yeah. Yeah? Aside absolutely. from the fact that you were offering the work experience opportunity. Yeah, and he had like... And like having spoken to his parents a number of times since and around that time. In fact, when we played Norwich, I think the Sheerans put everybody up. And I said to Luke, look, I just want a hotel room because, you know, we're staying with like an Uber fan. And he's got like pictures of us on the wall. It's just going to constantly ask questions. And then like, no, I didn't want to be rude. Like I was just really aware I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be grumpy. I'm going to be rude. Let's not do that. Like, he's young, slightly idealistic. Let's not let... I don't want to be the reason he just goes, I hate musicians now. <laughs> so he was, he was a, a massive fan. He knew all our songs. Um, he would often play them back to us. And, and I, like, yeah, I want to know how, what are you doing on the guitar there and how are you doing this sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, mass, a massive fan. You can hear the influence, I think, on the Ed Sheeran sound for the Nisloppy sound and certainly live as well. Like the way he connects with an audience is very much like how Luke connects with an audience, I think. Um, and I have to say he's very, very respectful and kind. Like he's constantly, he's like a one-man PR team at one point for Nisloppy. We weren't even a band and we were getting like massive hits because Ed Sheeran was picking us as his favourite record. And they're like, Ed, stop it. We're not even playing together. <laughs> my, my recollection of him from, from those gigs, that tour, was that he would just be so enthusiastic and would want to play you his new track. He'd want to battle rap you. He'd want to, he just wanted to collaborate, whatever it was, uh, you know, to the point where he did do your head in a, a little bit. <laughs> but you could see, you could certainly see that he had the, that eye of the tiger, whatever you want to call it, you know, he had something about him that was going to take him a long way. Mm. And um, how do you feel about it now when you see that he has, essentially become the biggest pop star in the world has just broken a whole load of records on the latest tour that you went on mm -hmm. by the likes of the rolling stones you too yeah nuts highest grossing yeah tour of 2019 i think or probably ever um how do i feel interesting enough after nisloppy split he um he messaged me before ed messaged me before his first record he was doing these kind of eps he did a whole load of them and he was like, I really want you to, you know, I wasn't living in London. I was living actually as a kind of a recluse in the countryside. Um, and I wasn't playing, I wasn't gigging. And um, he pestered me and said, would you come down and spend a day in the studio um, in London? I'll pay you. And I was like, okay. And he did. And he, he was gigging an unreal amount and earning nothing. And I think he paid me 150 quid, which I didn't feel very comfortable taking because... It's like, where the hell are you getting the money from? Like, he had nothing, just working his ass off, basically. But it was a great record. I'm, re you know, sadly, it was released and then it wasn't re-released. 
had a lot of the songs that became, you know, kind of big hits on the first record on, in fact. Um, but he was just very generous and it was lovely to work with in the studio, actually. It was super easy to work with in the studio, but very aware of, like, anybody did something that was slightly hooky, he'd be like, oh, I like that. You know, like a drum fill, he'd be like, oh. Uh, you know, like constantly dissecting and go, oh, interesting. Huh? There's another hit single there. Um, but um, yeah, in, so to answer your question. So then once Ed Sheeran had made it, like we were, me and him were in touch around the time that he was like a UK number one selling artist. So he'd done Jules Holland and he'd had quite a lot of hits off the first record and it was amazing. And I thought that's as big as, you can kind of go as a singer-songwriter because you have to be a Beyonce or a Michael Jackson to become these global phenomenon. Like it has to, it has to be other than acoustic guitar-y singer-songwriter. And um, and um, and then he start, he went on tour in America and he think he with Snow Patrol and ended up headlining. He broke America and I was like, oh my god, like this is uncharted territory. I can't really. Can't re- I can't really relate to it. And at that time, both me and Luke, and I'm pretty sure you were, and a number of people were just messaging him and saying, I hope you're okay. I hope this is going okay for you because it's very nuts. And I've only experienced it on a small scale, but, you know, remember kind of who you are, if it's possible, if you even know anymore. Um, so that was kind of nice. And he always gets back. Now it's usually emails and he's always... It's amazing. You get an email back. It's like, oh, it's crazy. My sister doesn't even email my back. So, you know, Ed Sheeran does. Um, I got asked by Radio 1. I did an interview with Radio 1 after his success. And Nisloppy weren't working together. And me and Luke weren't actually even talking. And it was quite a dark period. And a guy, a journalist, came to my house to interview me about Ed Sheeran. And I was just really brutally honest. That it was It was hard. It was hard to see someone do that well it was like oh my god and 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 also n- and feel like you were part of the process but also like now you felt a bit like a nobody like what have you done in the last 10 years you know like oh god yeah and it was it was the wrong totally the wrong way to look at it but it you have to be honest to those feelings as well i wasn't necessarily jealous of what ed had but i was like i just so wanted that i wanted to be touring again and playing festivals and having an impact being relevant and I was living in a basement in London and not really playing any music. And it was like, oh, we could have had this. It could have been ours. So that took a while to get my head around. And then and then I did. And now I look at it and I think, oh, I, I wouldn't. I mean, not that I could, but I wouldn't be able to cope with that level of success. It's just like, it's nuts, you know. And he does such good with it as well, which is, you know, hats off to him, yeah. If we just touch on for a minute then, where you think the music industry is at right now and what do you see the future of the industry being or where do you see it going? Mm. Um, cool. It's a good question. I've done a lot of thinking about it. I play with a lot of singer-songwriters, up-and-coming artists, some that are signed and some that are not doing the independent route. My personal feeling, it sounds bleak, but actually... I think it has to be bleak for it to be, to regenerate really, like Phoenix style. I think, I think the music industry is broken, and you know, and it, I just, I just think, and I, it's not just streaming. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's people's respect for music and art, 
I think people have taken have had it for free for too long. I think I think I don't know, like I really respected music when I grew up. Like I respect books and uh poetry and art and I respect the amount of time, creativity and bravery it takes to do that. I don't expect that for free, you know, like that's not on. I don't expect a plumber to plumb my you know, bathroom for free. And so it means that I get the impression people are like, eh, music, I can sort of live without it. And and then streaming, so you, you know, listen to a little bit of a track and not the whole thing. And um, so I sort of feel like we're a big period of change where the industry is probably going to eat itself and a new model will spring out. And hopefully that will be sustainable for the artists, you know, at the end of the day, they are the ones that are suffering. And it's the grassroots artists rather than maybe the massive artists that are really suffering the most, you know. So there needs to be more support for to get artists out gigging, getting them access to studios, those sort of things. And there's so much money in the music industry that just isn't being filtered through to the what I consider the most important areas, which is development, you know, and... Um, yeah, everything from artists even looking after themselves, you know. There's not enough of that. There's a lot of people, like, struggling and burning out and being bankrupt and, you know, there's where's the support? So, so yeah, so that sounds kind of bleak, but, but also in those periods, that's when some great music gets written. You know, like, politically, it's just a nightmare, isn't it? And I know a lot of artists look at it and go, well, what do we write about? Like, <laughs> it's just so much stuff, you know, so much difficult stuff to write about but that's music will reflect that this time you know we'll write about donald trump and hopefully him not getting another four years in power whatever it is you know we'll write about now and people will listen back to a jimmy davis record and go oh that was the time when this happened you know boris johnson was in power and that's how people felt so music will always survive and be relevant it's just there needs to be some adjustment in how people access it and um and then an acknowledgement that it's really important. Culture is is so important. And in these times, it's, yeah, <laughs> more important than ever, I'd say. Brilliant. Thanks so much for coming in today, John. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic to, to catch up and just to reminisce. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, to, and, I, and I think we, we've touched on some really important points. You have been listening to the Art and Business of Music podcast, our first ever edition, so thanks for tuning in. Please do spread the word and follow us on all our social media platforms at T-H-E-A-A-B-O-M. Go and check out the music of Nizlopi at all good digital and physical outlets, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.